Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. If I asked you to draw a picture of yourself that epitomized what you do as a clinician, what would it look like? Maybe you'd be talking to a patient, doing a physical exam, some sort of procedure. Cynically, maybe it would be typing into your EMR, whatever, but I'll bet you didn't think of an image where you were presenting information to your peers, giving a lecture. And that's fine. In fact, it's not something we commonly do compared to the amount of time we put into clinical work, but it is something that we all do. You might think, nah, you know, that's not me. That's my, you know what? I go to work, see the patients, do a good job. I'm good. I'm good. All done. But like it or not, you are a teacher to your partners, your patients, to the staff. And you may be speaking to a group of two or 2,000. Just doesn't matter. You still do it. But it's something that most of us don't get the same excellent training like we do with our medical skills. Case in point, I was once in a group meeting where one of my partners, and this was after an M&M where you give a presentation on a particular disorder, read, literally read from a chapter in Tintin Alley. Ver- Freaking Batum. Dude, that was a low point. Now, over the past decade or so, speaking skills and presentation quality, I think, has improved and evolved logarithmically in many fields, including medicine. And at the forefront of this movement is Dr. Ross Fisher. Ross is the creator of P-Cubed, a presentation philosophy based on three core principles, the message, the supporting media, and the delivery. If you have ever been frustrated by watching death by PowerPoint, or even frustrated by making your own multi-bullet-pointed presentation that has felt less than satisfying, Ross is the antidote for what ails you. Ross's blog, P-Cubed Presentations, is actually one of the few that I read 100% of the posts. Now, one reason is that public speaking is a significant part of what I do, but number two, it is just so damn good. What we're going to cover today is really a minuscule fraction of what Ross has to offer as far as presentation wisdom. And we're going to cover how to finish a talk. Usually we don't do this so well. Maybe we have some kind of incongruous slide of our vacation picture or a bizarre clip art that has nothing to do with the talk itself. And then an awkward thank you from the presenter. How can we do that better? We'll find out. We're going to talk about spaced repetition within a presentation. But first, let's hear Ross's thoughts on giving feedback. Of course, if we never get feedback on our presentations, we'll never know the points where we can improve. But feedback can be hard to take and hard to give. At least give well. Let's say you see a presentation by someone you don't really know, but you kind of, and you know, afterwards, you know, you're, you're talking to them and not talking to them as a total stranger, but you're not in their trusted circle. And you see like, it was just death by PowerPoint. There were 15 bullet points per slide. And it was, like, oh my gosh. And it could have been so much better with just a little tweak. How do you give, or should you give feedback in that situation? People say you can criticize folks' children, but not their PowerPoint. I don't know a simple answer to that question. I would say it's like any feedback. Feedback has to be in a safe place and it's best if it is asked for rather than given unsolicited. It makes me a little sad when 
People say, oh, I'm, I'm terrible. Um, you're going to be in the audience while I'm giving a presentation. I say, but I have never walked up to anyone after a presentation and given them unsolicited feedback. And nor do I sit there and scratch my head or shake and look miserable. But I, I do think that presentation skills are a skill. They're not innate. And just because you're the chief or the chief resident or just because you're Good at what you do does not make you good at presentation skills. You commented earlier, we, many of us give presentations, but virtually none of us have been taught to do it. And if we have, the only thing we've been taught is 30-20-10 rule or something like that. We haven't been taught how to construct a message, how to illustrate it appropriately and what happens with delivery. And so I think we have to be gentle with our colleagues because they aspire to the level of mediocrity they see around them and they will see other people doing what they think is good and so they will do it. Now, the fact that they don't know that it isn't good is not their fault necessarily. And that's why when I do workshops, I try and get people to understand what a good presentation should be. Interestingly, when people say, well, what I don't like in presentations is somebody who reads it off their slides, too many bullet points and no message. I say, well, that's what you do though, isn't it? There's partly a problem they don't know anywhere else to go. So Answering your question about feedback, I wouldn't just give somebody feedback unless they ask for it. And if they ask for it, you have to know specifically what point of feedback they want. Most people immediately after a presentation just want to feel good. That's the congratulations feedback. I enjoyed that. You had a strong message or something. But if you're actually coaching someone, that's different. Then you need to look into the things that they want to work with and as in a lot of things, that coaching needs to be positive rather than critical. Because you can have anyone stand up and say, I didn't like this, didn't like that, and didn't like that. It needs to be saying, right, your message, I got your message, I was confused by this part, could you explain that to me further? And that keyword of why in feedback, I think, changes everything. So I noticed you had lots of slides with many bullet points. Why have you done that? And the answer to that will be interesting, and I think it's complex. Most people, if they're honest, they're using it as their script, or at least their bullet points to talk from. And so you can expect them to lose that straight away, because then they'll be lost. They haven't prepared a message, they've prepared a bullet point script to read to you. Why do you do that? I do that because it's my handout. Well, okay, so we need to talk that handouts shouldn't be the, exactly the slides that you put up there. I do that because that's what people expect. Do you think people actually expect that? Because I don't think that's what I was expecting and that challenges me. And then you can start to get into, do you know that that inhibits people's learning is a challenging question to ask. No, I didn't. Well, now you know you're going to treat that differently. And so as in all feedback and performance feedback, and that's what we do in our jobs, we have to be very careful. We don't destroy people with it and help them to make small changes, which eventually will lead to the bigger changes. And I think actually for, for you ED folks, you are blessed and destroyed in equal measure because they go to conferences and they will see awesome speakers. And I mean awesome speakers. And I've seen them. And you just look at that and say, there is no way I can do that. So what I'll do is carry on doing my death by PowerPoint. And I then look around and see there are lots of people who do death by PowerPoint. And so why should I change? And so that's difficult. Whereas sadly, I go to surgical meetings and it's all death by PowerPoint. And actually I'm the weirdo who stands up and doesn't do the same thing. You can see people going, 
whoa, what is this? That's actually quite confronting for some people because it's, quote, not scientific or that's not how other people do it. And so there's a very different personal experience of what's going on. But the answer to your question, how do you do it, is you have to get into a discussion and see if people want feedback and are they in a safe place for that. That's not immediately after the meeting. And the feedback, we need to determine what sort of feedback that is and how they want to change from there. Let's do a little specific feedback. So I'll be giving a talk and I'll come to some great point. It's a crescendo, you know, this beautiful slide has been created. And then the talk is over and I'll say, quote, that's it. Thanks. And every time I do it, I think there must be a better way. The wonderful Ashley Leibig. She finishes a talk by going, that's all I've got. I've told her this and she laughs about it because she doesn't know how to do it any differently. And it's odd because when we think of the psychology and the educational value of that, these phrases that we use are an immediate (laughs) raspberry on everything that you've done before. It's not all you've got. No, it isn't the end. You need to signal the end in, I think, in all three parts. So you need to signal the end in your message. And usually that is delivery of your punchline, the key message, your this is why we are here. Pediatric trauma is different and that's why we manage it differently. There's a big pause there. That's it. Just stop speaking. What I suggest for the P2, the supportive media, is that that also signals it's the end. Now, I think the handshake or the sunset or the picture of the globe are as cliched as thank you for your presentation. I very much enjoyed it. So I talk about the best slide in the world, which is freely available. Anyone can use it. You can use it multiple times in your presentation. And that is either a blank slide or press B on your keyboard or W on your keyboard. If you press B for black, then the screen will go black. Now, if you're in a dim room and you do that, that may plunge the world into darkness. So that's a bad thing as well as B. So you can press W for white, and that will make the screen white in Keynote or PowerPoint, if you've got the keyboard in front of you. If you haven't, then put in a blank slide. The value of the best slide in the world, the blank slide, is that there is nothing for the audience to look at apart from you. And so if you stand there in silence, they will stare at you. If you speak, they will listen only to you. They, they won't be distracted by the sunset going, is that Seattle? No, is it poor? I'm not sure. Is that poor? They're not listening to you. Now, the temptation after the pause is to go, thank you, or that's all I've got, or whatever. But if you just stand there, they will look at you, and it is clear that you have delivered your punchline, and then they have to react in some way. And that's usually applause. I think the P3 part of that, the delivery, you need to be clear in your speech that this has ended. So the pause is a great way to do it, but also in your body mannerism that this has ended it. And I don't know how you do it. Uh, One way would be to put your hands behind your back or to move off and go and sit down again or whatever. It depends on the nature of what you've been doing, whether it's uh, sitting down on a couch or leaving the stage or whatever. But I think that you should signal in each of the three parts, this is over. And, and, I, and I think about, and I'm just visualizing the, the personal discomfort on stage with that. And 
it, frankly, it's easier. You know, when you're speaking to a very large audience, it's it's almost easier because it's less personal. But you know, when you're speaking to 100 or 150 people, and you can see or 20 people, and the, and they're right there, it's just that transaction. You know, the transaction is complete, and I want to shake your hand, and so that we know it's over. So I'm I'm standing up there, and I can say, "Here's what I want you to take home: that you cannot rely on the fast exam." In pediatric trauma patients, I think the thank you is is a thing that we do. The reason we say it is because we know that when the speaker says thank you, now you can start to applaud because there might be something coming. But do we really need people to say thank you before they start the applause? I, I don't know, and it, that in itself is not a problem. Gar Reynolds says, "Don't say thank you; they should be thanking you. It's not that they have done something for you; you've done it for them." These are nuances. I think it's important that we finish on a positive. And the last thing that we say is not dismissive. So rather than saying, I'm very nervous about this talk, I'm going to start talking. I hope you think it'll be okay. That's got a negative on it at the beginning. So don't do that at the end either. I'm sorry that uh, that's all I've got is, yeah, <laughs> is it really? And that it leaves people with a question rather than, wow, okay, that's his message about fast scans. I need to pay attention to that. So you bring up questions, which is a great point and that last slide you know you're on vacation and you've got the picture of the canyon and the beautiful sunset and you want to have questions so you put up a slide that says questions question mark or like a, a clip art of someone asking a question how do you do that i think educationally it's important that we recognize that the summary and conclusion are at the end we have to be a little bit careful at scientific meetings are slightly different but if you've been invited to speak somewhere and there is an opportunity for questions, my best advice is that you get to the end and you deliver it and say, now we have a space for questions. Questions are asked, and importantly, you then get to summarize. I think what is very bad, and physicians are particularly bad for this, is if someone out there disagrees with you about the FAST scan, and he gives you his opinion on the fact that he's done 34 scans and he was right every single time, that's fine. I don't care because you're wrong. You know, those 34 scans, that's not published anywhere. The scientific literature shows that the accuracy of pediatric fast is poor. The fact that you have done it and you've been lucky enough to be right those 30 times is great. All credit to you. But this lecture is on the scientific accuracy of fast scan. And my message to you is fast scan should not be influencing your management. So importantly, the last thing the audience needs to hear is you, the speaker, they invited Dr. Rob Orman, not this guy in the audience. And it was for you to deliver your message. And so you get the privilege that was given to you by the inviting people to have the stage and close that message out. And so what you can say is, with respect to my colleague in the audience, my message to you is this, that based on the evidence that is currently aware available, pediatric fast scan should not be the basis of whatever. That was your invitation and you get to finish it off. You can respect that member of the audience that they've got their opinion, but ultimately they do not have equal privilege on that stage because it was given to you. And what you don't want the audience doing is the last thing they hear in their head is some random in the audience who has opinions and ideas. If he wants his chance on the stage, he can come next year or he can get invited. And that's fine. But it was your chance to have your message. And that's why I think when you finish the talk, you should say, thank you for the questions that we've had. And with respect to Dr. A, I'm going to change my practice on this. And with respect to Dr. B, 
I'm intrigued by that. I'm going to read your paper. My message to you, however, is this. Pediatric trauma is different, and that is why we should manage it differently. That's a sea change. I just want to structure this in my mind. You're giving your presentation. Do you say, now, before I conclude, I'd like to open this to any questions. Then the questions come, you answer them, you talk to the audience, say, we're out of time for questions, and I appreciate this, I feel this way. My conclusion is this, drop the mic. Yeah, but you should have already given them your conclusion. So conclusion, conclusion, so then the, questions. The top ends, and if there's no time for questions, then there's no time. So they, they have got the punchline, because it, otherwise it's like telling a joke without the punchline. It's got to be there. And so it has to be complete. And you don't want them to say, oh, we have no more time and that's it. And so I think it's important also that you have negotiated with the chairman so that she knows that you have a concluding sentence and you say, whatever happens, I want my one last minute here just to finalize this. I will summarize what I've been given from the audience. Any things that we got, we take account of that. But then you go back to your one key message, which is pediatric trauma is different. And that is why we manage it differently. So you conclude, you do questions, and then you conclude again. Same conclusion. It's the same punchline. I coach people that there's only two phrases that you need to memorize. That's your introductory and your closing. So you're talking about memorizing. That's a very interesting thing that you memorize your introduction, memorize your conclusion. I want to talk about scripts. When I make a lecture, I write out the script, whether it's a page or 20 pages or whatever, and I work through it many times. I don't know if I'll memorize the whole thing, but you know, I, kinda, I, know, I know what the content is on there. I guarantee you, I used to memorize verbatim the whole thing. And I was thinking about that when I was watching a young attending recently, the consultant, as you'd say in the UK, was giving a talk, very complex. And the information, the structure was fantastic. Message, media, beautiful, beautiful. But the delivery... It was interesting in a good or bad way because it was clear that he had written a script, he had practiced his talk so he could hit every beat. He could hit every beat of the script without error. But the bad part was that the delivery was robotic. The inflection felt forced, you know, and rather than kind of conversational, it was like he had a teleprompter in his mind and was reading verbatim. It sounded like he was reading rather than talking. And because of that, I could feel it that the audience was totally disengaged. And I'm thinking, what, what is going on here? Because you know, writing a script seems to help and structuring and rehearsing, rehearsal so key, but you know, watching this kind of thing happen repeatedly, like people read the script in their mind and then sound like they're reading, I wonder if you know, using a script, is it a bad idea? Is it how you use it? Yes and no. Like you, I will write out what I want to say. Once I've decided where I'm going with the talk, the message is constructed and I type out a script verbatim, and then I edit it. And I edit it and move it around and see which works and change words around. So I am as good as I can possibly be in that script. And then I read that script out and time it. Now, one thing I notice is that people who overrun do so because they have never practiced. They've just got their bullet points and they think, yeah, well, I can do that. That's roughly a minute or two and that's a minute or two here. So they have a, a rough idea of how things are going to go, but they get that wrong because they don't know. And on the day, things are worse and you always take longer to do it. So my best advice is 75 to 80% time of your allocated time. 
that script must come in. And if it doesn't, you have to get back and edit it. And stripping it down to the key points, that will get you your time frame. So then I have that script and I'll edit it and look at it and see how I can make it as good as I can possibly do. And what I do is I will read that script three or four times in my practice, and then I'll put the script away and I will challenge myself to deliver that message without the script and see where I get to. And there is no excuse. I'm not allowed to pick the script up. I have to get to the point at which I can remember what I'm saying. Now, that's helpful if you have slides because they're key markers. And that's one of the things that I I would encourage people to do is that when I see the picture of Neo, I know that I'm talking about the matrix in education. And then I remember what I'm talking about, the matrix in education. And so I'm clear in that. And usually I will remember my phraseology. But you have to remember that written phraseology is different from spoken. And as you rightly say, when you deliver a message, if you're just reading it, it doesn't have the sincerity and the value that we place on a more conversational approach, even in a scientific meeting. People want your opinion. They can get a textbook answer better than they can from listening to you. And that, therefore, is a change in your engagement with them. And that's why we don't like someone who has memorized it, because it feels forced where we don't get the flow. And that's why we don't engage. And that's why we don't remember it. And the real key for me is that once we recognize that our message is not a data download, it is about facts that are woven into our message, then we can start to relax about not remembering everything as a speaker. And then that actually drops your stress level hugely because you know the major steps that you're going to make and the minor steps in the in between time are less important. Then you can concentrate on engaging with people. And it's not that you have to have 100% of your download like an app. You can have... of it, you can go off at a tangent because you see there's a problem and you still have a valid message. Whereas if you are like downloading an app and you only get 99% of it, it won't work. That changes how people think about a presentation when it's a message, not a data download. Then you can afford to extemporize, take time, think about things, forget perhaps, and move things in a different order and it will still work. And that's better for the presenter and better for the audience. Use three terms in there, message, facts, and data download. When you're talking, you're giving a presentation on pediatric trauma. There are going to be facts in there and maybe some facts that you'd like people to remember, but you definitely want them to remember the message. And this brings up the idea of spaced repetition. Now, we've been really appreciating this for the past several years, but usually we think about spaced repetition over days, weeks, months, or even years. But I'm curious as to how you approach spaced repetition in a talk in a couple ways. One is structurally how you do it and what you say and what your media looks like. But also, are you doing spaced repetition for the facts or for your message or a little bit of both? It's a little bit of everything. The data is not as important as we think it is. It's important that people recognize that FastScan has a sensitivity of 50%. Now, if it was 51% or 49%, that still is not going to change anything. People think that they think that they need to know that, but actually they don't. And what they will come away from is thinking, FAST does not have a good sensitivity. That's the message. 
If you actually want the numbers and the numbers are essential, and, and some people say to me, oh, you're just hiding this or you're, you're not giving full data. No, I'm saying here is my message. Fast scan is not good. For you to know how fast scan is not good, I want you to go to this blog post that I've written on it. And the data is there and you can spend hours going over that and pick your way through it. But the place for people to be picking through data is in their office with a cup of coffee, some time and a notepad. It is not in a short presentation. And a lot of us are confused by that because that's what we've always been exposed to. And you'll find the professor says to you, I don't understand what you're doing because I can't see the data in front of me. That's not actually true because if you say I've done this study and the results show that this is statistically significant, it doesn't matter if it is three out of a thousand or seven out of 1,259. It's still statistically significant. And we get confused because we like to have these numbers. They don't actually work because we don't remember them. And that's the important thing that educationally, the evidence is clear that you can probably retain seven new data points if, and that is if, you actually set out to do so. So if I told you there are seven things here, on the basis of that, the person who remembers them gets a million dollars at the end of this, people will work really hard. But if you don't, then people think that they need these data points, but they forget them almost immediately. Or worse, they get confused about them. If the data points are important, you need to give those to people. And that's why I say you should have a, a handout or a blog post or a, a URL that they can go to. But they are never going to retain them in their head. We can use them. And it's not that you don't even say them. But if you put them on a screen, people will read them. I use a data slide about the CRASH-2 trial and the risk of cerebrovascular accidents. And you can see people trying to figure out the numbers. The important thing is a huge no statistically significant difference between the two groups. And that's all you need to remember. It doesn't matter that it's 87 in one and 94 in the other group. There is no difference. And that, once you're released from that as a speaker and an audience member, allows you to concentrate on the message. Then we come to spaced repetition. How do we do that? I would be intrigued from your audience going back. They know what we think about FastScan because we've said it three times in this podcast. So that repetition of that fact helps people remember it. So when they hear it another time, they go, yeah, I've heard that. And so I find there is value in a talk of signposting my message. At the very beginning, my introductory thing is, I'm going to talk to you about pediatric trauma management because I think it's different. And then my pediatric trauma management lecture, I use the word different three times. It's about different numbers. It's about different therapy, and it's about making a difference. And that's the phrase that people are left with, pediatric trauma, different. And if that's all they remember, that is the building point from which they can rebuild my talk. They are never going to remember the facts, but they will remember that he said it was different. The example I use in my workshop, I show people a picture of the glass slipper, and I say, what film's that from? And everyone knows what film that's from. And right now, your listeners are rebuilding their memory of that film purely from a glass slipper. Imagine if you could do that for teaching about rapid sequence induction, that somebody would just go, ah, yeah, and then rebuild it. They're not going to remember simple facts. They'll remember it from keys. It's the same way that if I start a piece of music, you'll start singing along. But if I asked you what the lyrics were without you singing it, you're stuck. It's about using clues. And that's what spaced repetition is. It's that repetition. So that clue is in somebody's head. And from that, they can rebuild it. 
As we finish up, I want to more clearly define something that you said, which is the message. Here is my message to you, but in P cubed, there's story, supporting media, and delivery. We've got the rise of the TED style talks and story. The story has taken a prominent role as a vehicle for teaching, for retention. And for sure, when you connect factual learning or um, even a message to a story or a narrative, it's much better retained than just stating the fact. But you recently wrote this message, not story, is the basis of a good presentation. What do you mean by that? After seven years of doing this, I am changing my website to say, message, media, and delivery rather than story. Story was what I came up with and it's worked, but actually it's not story. It's not once upon a time. I think once upon a time has a place and I'll come back to that, but it's about our message and message can include story. Story works because it affects the way that our brain works so that if we care about something, we will remember it more than if we don't care about it. Even down to the fact of Think about the last time you did RSI. Was it as good as it could possibly be? Look at that patient in front of you now. That is a different introduction than saying, let's talk about RSI. It makes you think differently. And we have to remember in education that it is about persuasion, not simply the delivery of facts. And the example I use about that is Semmelweis, the father of modern infection control. He knew what was killing the babies, but could not convince people of why that was. The facts were there, but his transfer of those facts was what failed. Ross Fisher. Man, do I love talking with him. Such an ocean of wisdom, so gracious in sharing his expertise. If you want to learn more about Ross and the P-Cubed way, check him out at foliate, that's F-F-O-L-L-I-T dot com, or just search P-Cubed presentations, or just click the link for his website on the show notes for this episode. There's so many ways to go about it. And that is going to be a wrap for today's episode of Stimulus. For complete and detailed show notes of today's show, or any other episode and go our whole back dang catalog. You can find that all at stimuluspodcast.com. And when you're there, as it turns out, you can also sign up for the stimulus, occasional, irregular, non-spammy, totally sporadic newsletter. Or you know what? You can also not sign up for it. Full agency on what you do there. Full agency, baby. You can subscribe to Stimulus and pretty much any podcatcher that's out there. Apple Podcatcher. Spotify, Stitcher. I don't even know. There's so many of them out. Who even knows? And wherever you subscribe, throw down a review and rating. Throw down some stars for us. You know. Mench it up. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.